Let me invite you to take your Bible today and turn to the gospel according to Luke. Our passage today comes from Luke chapter, 5, uh, chapter 3, verse 15 to 38. We are picking up where we left off last week with the ministry of John the Baptist in the region around the Jordan. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 38. With God's help, let's turn our hearts now to the reading of God's Word. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he, was, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nation, the son of Amenadab, the son of Admon, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Naor, the son of Sarek, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. 
Well, the ministry of John the Baptist, it's evident from reading this text, was bringing about its divine intent, preparing the way of the Lord, preparing the way of Jesus Christ. And you can see that especially in the way that it, it prompts a number of questions and stirrings of heart among the people who listen to John the Baptist preach. First, there was the question as to how one might be prepared for the, the judgment that was to come. We saw that last week as several different segments of society come forward and they respond to the word that John the Baptist is preaching. They say, what then shall we do if every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and it's thrown into the fire what does a repentant life look like? How should we respond to that? That was the first order of business, to respond in faith and repentance to this call to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Well, that led in turn to another question, and, and it's, it's a question that's not at all surprising. You can find it in verse 15 of our text, where it says that the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. By God's grace, John's ministry was having an impact. The Lord is working in the hearts of his people. There is this seasoning, you might describe it as a seasoning of awakening, a season of awakening and, and renewal. And this spirit that we saw earlier and, and people like uh, Simeon and Anna, this, this spirit of um, eagerness and expectation uh, begins to sweep over the whole land. The, the people at large are in expectation and thoughts begin to well up. They begin to ponder and to speculate as to who this man might be preaching out in the wilderness. Was he the promised Messiah? Well, that presented John with a bit of a problem. There's always a temptation when someone speaks with authority, even when it's a legitimate authority, whenever you have a person that garners some level of, of recognition or just delivers a message that elicits some kind of response, even when that message is true, even when it's a, a biblically faithful message, to give them a kind of of praise and a kind of glory that they don't deserve. And we expect that. We see that in the world all over the place. We expect to see rabid, shrieking fans in the world of sports or, or media, kind of celebrity culture that just pervades everything. Sadly, though, this infects the church as well. And so, John gets wind of this. He gets wind of the fact that people are, are wondering whether he might be the Christ. And you can imagine the sort of thoughts that might begin to race through his mind. If you have ever uh, gone online and you've looked up something on Wikipedia, occasionally you might find at the top of a page a section that, that starts with the word disambiguation. And that is there to tell you, well, here is a word that has a variety of different meanings. Or here's a bunch of historical figures, and they all sh uh, share the same name. Are you sure that you have the right one? 
Are you sure that the person you're thinking of is, is the one that's being described here? Make sure you know who it is you're reading about before you go on. Otherwise, you're going to come up with all kinds of seriously inaccurate conclusions. You're going to come away with all kinds of connections that are completely off the mark. And that's very much what John the Baptist is doing in this, pa- in this passage. He is uh, justifiably alarmed, and he is quick to deny any such thing that he is the Christ. He works to distinguish himself from the Messiah, and not just to say, I am not the Messiah, but to say, let me tell you about the incomparability of the Messiah with a person like myself. Let me tell you about his supremacy, his greatness, his worth. Let me tell you about the great work that the one who is coming after me has come to fulfill. Now, we see this, brothers and sisters, in three significant ways. First, John says, Jesus is mightier than I. Verse 16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This is the consistent testimony of John the Baptist, both in terms of the the lowliness of his status and the exaltedness of Jesus Christ. He is always working, always looking for ways to deflect any glory that might be coming his way to shine the spotlight on Jesus Christ, to point other people to the Savior who's come into the world. He's always saying, don't look at me. I'm just the messenger. Look at Jesus Christ. Let all of the glory be due to him. He must increase. I must decrease. In Acts chapter 13, verse 25, he's quoted as saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. I'm not he. He's insistent on this. Jesus is the mighty one. John bore witness about him. He cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. I may have come on the scene, on this temporal scene earlier than him, but he ranks before me because he was before me. He has been eternally with the Father from before the foundation of the world. He is the mighty one. John wants the world to know this. Jesus, not John, is strong to save, able and more than able to redeem humanity from their sins, to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. John could do none of those things. Brothers and sisters, we can do none of those things. We are nothing but heralds of the one who comes to save. John wanted the world to know about it. He wanted the world to know that Jesus Christ deserves the glory, that he is where their hope was to be found. And this is the mark, not just of John the Baptist, but of every true servant of the Lord Most High to unashamedly confess both our unworthiness and his great worth, his great glory. 
even to, to say how unworthy we are, not just to gain entrance into his kingdom, but to serve, to serve at his feet. You see what, what John says here, I'm not even worthy to untie the, the straps of his sandal. So glorious is he. I'm not even worthy for such a low, meaning, menial task. This was considered such a, a low, such a degrading thing to untie the straps of sandals that Jewish slaves were exempt from it. There's an old rabbinic saying that says this, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the the loosing of his sandal thong. There are some things that are just too low, even for a slave. But you see how John takes that idea and he turns that on on its head and he says, I am not even worthy to untie them. Let me tell you about my inferiority. And friends, this is not false humility. This isn't something that John just put on. It's not an affect. It is sincere lowliness of heart. He couldn't stomach the idea of someone venerating him. You might remember that in the first chapter of John, uh, the, the, the Jews and the, 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 uh, they send out this detail of priests and Levites to come and to interrogate John the Baptist. They ask him, like all of the others that we see here, who are you? Answer, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. You see how emphatic he is. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And this is always how it should be with the people of God, that there is this instinctive desire in our hearts to deflect glory away from ourselves and unto the Lord, that we're always longing to point people to Jesus Christ. You probably won't ever have someone come to you and suggest that you might be the Messiah. But there's probably a good chance that on occasion, someone may make much of you over one thing or another, where you'll have an opportunity either to to take that in, just to let all of that absorb into you, to become puffed up with pride Or to say, let me tell you about someone infinitely greater. Let me tell you about someone I don't could could never begin to compare with. Put the spotlight on the mighty one. When Martin Luther was still alive, already there were people who were beginning to call themselves Lutherans. And that was a term that Luther himself was not at all fond of. On one occasion, he said this. He said, who is this Luther? My teaching is not my own, and I have not been crucified for anyone. Why should it happen to me, miserable, stinking bag of maggots that I am? 
that the children of Christ should be called by, by my insignificant name. Miserable, stinking bag of maggots that I am. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And that's the contrast. And so it is with John. He who is mightier than I is coming. Pay attention to him. Listen to him. Glory in him. Secondly, Christ's baptism is greater. Again, if you look at verse 16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we have seen already that John's baptism was a, a water baptism. It's not the same thing as Christian baptism today, uh, though there are certainly parallels, but it was a preparatory baptism to make ready the way of the Lord. It was a shadow of what was to come in Christ. Now, John here says that the baptism Christ brings is a baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now let's deal with that first part. First, Jesus brings the Spirit. He brings the Spirit to fill and to empower the people of God. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people of God so that we might walk in His statutes, so that we might be careful to obey all of his rules. The, the, the Spirit of God gives us power to live for God, power that we do not have in ourselves. If you want to live for the Lord, you need the Spirit of God. If you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you trusted in him alone for salvation, you have the Spirit of God to enable you to live for Jesus Christ. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, God's word says. Jesus said that the Spirit is given to the believer to teach us all things, to bring to remembrance all that Christ said, to guide us into all the truth, to be our helper, to empower us as witnesses. Do you ever wonder, how can I go into that world as a faithful witness for Jesus Christ? You need the Spirit. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to enable you, to give you words. The Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, what are we to make of the fire John mentions? John seems to be using this image of fire in two different ways. First, in verse 16, you notice that Christ's baptism brings both the Spirit and fire on the same people, on the same audience, and that's, that's important. Last week, we read from Malachi uh, chapter 3, where it talks about the day of the Lord. I want to read from that passage again, uh, Malachi chapter 3, this is verses 1 to 4. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Do you see the, the nature of the fire there? When the Lord comes, he will be as a refiner's fire among his people. He will work to cleanse and to purify his people for their good and for the glory of his great name. Now again, brothers and sisters, if you have been born of God, if you are a new creation, the Spirit of God is at work in you in this way. He's at work in you. The Holy Spirit dwells within you to cleanse and to sanctify you. I want to read again from Isaiah chapter 4. This is a key passage, Isaiah 4, verse 2. It says that in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And there it's talking about the promised Messiah that springs forth from the Lord, the branch of the Lord, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. And everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning." There you have the same theme once again. A spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. So the baptism of Christ brings purification, sanctification, and holiness to the people of God. The spirit is at work in those who truly belong to the Lord that we might be prepared as a bridegroom is prepared for her husband. That's one of the evidences that Christ has truly saved us, that he is refining us, that he is sanctifying us. Uh, Peter describes things in the very same terms as Isaiah. He talks about it as a form of judgment. He says that it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It's a temporal judgment, but it's a judgment nonetheless a spirit of judgment, and a spirit of burning, a purifying fire. I wonder if you see evidence of that in your life. Uh, The Apostle Peter also goes on. He says, and if it begins with us, which is to say, if this judgment begins in the household of God, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And this also is exactly where John the Baptist takes us in verse 17. Looking back at our passage, Luke chapter 3, verse 17, 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So for those that don't respond in repentance and in faith, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if you don't put your trust in this one who, who John is repeatedly saying to us, he is mightier than I, he is mighty to save, the fire that he speaks of is a symbol not of purification, but of condemnation, of eternal judgment. That's the the third point of distinction that John makes. He says, Jesus is mightier than I, number one. Number two, his baptism is greater than his. And then third, Jesus comes to judge the world. He speaks of a a, a sifting and and a division that Christ brings. You've you've got this agricultural image of of wheat being separated from the chaff. The the farmer takes his winnowing fork and he he takes it to the harvest laying there and he throws it up into the air so that the grains of wheat can fall to the ground and then the wind drives the chaff off and then that chaff is taken up and it is burned. It's a picture of two groups of people who are being separated. One is saved, and the other is burned. And notice, beloved, that it is an unquenchable fire. An unquenchable fire. We're talking about eternal punishment here. Isaiah 34, verse 10 says, Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Later in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. We all have those visible, temporal, familial connections in this world. But church, there is also the, the spiritual, eternal fellowship that is wrought only by faith in the Son of God. And Jesus is saying here that he will divide for all of eternity those who are his from those that reject him. And so the fire does have a twofold purpose, both of purification and of judgment. Beloved, the good news of the gospel has to include both. It must include both the good news of forgiveness of sins, but also the bad news of sin and judgment and the wrath that is to come. And we must not shrink back 
from declaring both sides of that story. We must not uh, refuse to, to tell the whole truth. We must not lop off those hard edges of the gospel. We must call people to repent and to believe. The souls of men are at stake. Adjustments cannot be made. The gospel will never be palatable to natural men. You can see that in verses 18 to 20. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Herod hears about what's going on with John the Baptist out in the region, outside the, around the Jordan, and he sends him an invitation. He, he presumably calls him into his chambers and he says, well, John, I hear that you have built up for yourself quite a following. I'd like to hear a little bit about what you have to say. And John says, well, let me start with this. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias was the wife of Herod's half-brother. She was also Herod's niece, and John knew this was going on. Everyone knew this was going on. It doesn't take much imagination to, uh, to realize the kind of predicament that John the Baptist was in Uh, going into Herod's chambers that day. The Tetrarch of Galilee. Would he keep his mouth shut? Would he try to just kind of keep his head down, take kind of a gentler, uh, softer approach to things, tell him Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Did he really need to put his finger in such specific terms on Herod's life? John rebuked Herod. He preached the law. He preached the righteousness of God, and he did so in specific ways because it's the law that opens men's eyes to the holiness of God. It's the law that says this is the righteousness that God requires and we have all fallen short. We have all fallen short. And so John said you may not live this way. This isn't, the, this isn't lawful. Whatever the law of the land might say, this is not lawful in the sight of God. There is a higher standard to which we are all accountable and he reproved him. He reproved him for Herodias, and that wasn't all. He said, this is, this is just the tip of the iceberg as far as all the evil things that you've done are concerned. You imagine being in his shoes. Brothers and sisters, it's one thing to say you need to believe in Jesus. That is true, but you cannot cling to Christ and to sin at the same time. We have to be willing to join Paul. We have to be willing to say, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers 
will inherit the kingdom of God. Malachi, immediately after he talks about the Lord's refining fire, he follows on with this. This is, again, from Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. The Lord says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Beloved, why do you think Luke inserted this story about John's interaction with Herod where he does? What happened to John the Baptist? What results did his ministry bring about? Did Herod say, John, thank you very much I have seen the error of my ways. No. He locked John up. He threw him into prison. And if you know the rest of the story, you know John was eventually beheaded. Sometimes following Jesus Christ means losing your head. We must be so, so careful how we measure our quote, effectiveness or success as we go and and labor in God's harvest fields. What a dangerous word a success is in the kingdom of God. John was not successful by human standards, but brothers and sisters, faithfulness, not success, not response cards, not numerical growth is our only duty. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at verse 21 and 22 with me, it says, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Just imagine this scene with me. All the people go out to be baptized by John. Each is standing there, waiting in line, waiting for their turn. And there is Christ, numbered among them. Well, that immediately raises a question, doesn't it? Chapter 3 and verse 3 says that John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's a baptism of repentance. It signaled the heart's return to God. It was an appeal for cleansing and forgiveness. Why then do we find Jesus submitting to baptism? He had nothing to be forgiven of. He had no sins to wash away, no transgressions to atone for. On the face of things, we have a problem here. It's the same problem we see at the other end of his life when Christ is hanging on the cross and the thief that's hanging next to him says, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. 
So why did Jesus get baptized? We know from the book of Matthew that John the Baptist wondered the same thing. It says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. It was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. By submitting to John's baptism, the Son of God is publicly taking his place among the human race. He is identifying himself with the people that he has come to represent, that he has come to be a substitute for. From the very start of his ministry, you see him doing this. We see the true and better Adam standing in our place as our covenant head, walking in perfect obedience before the law, so that as the Apostle Paul says, as by the one man's disobedience, The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ came to fulfill all righteousness. And in just a couple of verses already, you get a glimpse of that. His perfection, his supremacy, the beauty of his ministry, his glory, what he is coming to do. You see from the outset of his ministry, church, he's a man of prayer. He is bowed down before the Father. The whole ministry commences in prayer. He's living in dependence on the Lord. Luke has a particular fondness for drawing this out, for for showing uh, Jesus' prayer life all along the way. It's as Jesus is praying that the heavens are open. The Holy Spirit descends upon him, commissioning him, anointing him with power from on high. The voice of the Father rings out, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You have an attestation both of Christ's sonship and the Father's love for him. And this pulls together two Important text from the Old Testament. First is from uh, Psalm chapter 2. That is a a royal song, a kingly song. It speaks of Christ's kingly rule. And in Psalm 2, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again from Isaiah 42. One of the servant songs. You heard it this morning in our public reading, Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And so together, you have an endorsement, a divine endorsement of the highest degree of Jesus Christ. And beloved, everything rests on this, the pleasure that God takes in his Son. For we have failed him. Let us be convinced of that in our hearts today, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And yet the Father has given us a substitute and a perfect one, one who is fully God 
and fully man. The perfect Savior. That's what the the genealogy here at the end of the chapter emphasizes. If the Father's voice emphasizes Christ's divinity, his genealogy emphasizes especially his humanity. This is not just a genealogy for a genealogy's sake. Some of you may have uh, family trees that you've hung on the wall, and that's fine. Uh, but in the ancient world, uh, genealogies are, are, are there to outline a person's credentials. Unlike Matthew, Luke does not march forward through history He takes us backwards, step by step. He starts by saying that Jesus began his ministry at about 30 years of age. Now, if you were a Jew and you were living at that time, you would have known immediately that that was a significant age. It was the age priests began their service. It was the same age that David began his reign. It was the age men like Ezekiel were called to the ministry So you have prophet, priest, and king all running through your head as you think about Jesus beginning his ministry around 30 years of age. You have this interesting parenthetical comment in verse 23 saying that he was the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, which is to say that he is not merely the son of man, And yet he is man. He is in the line of David. He is in the line of the promised king. He is the seed of Abraham. He's the one to whom the promise uh, was given. He's the son of Adam. He is like us in every way, accepting our sin. And he is the son of God. The fact that you have the the genealogy appearing here at the the very dawn of of Christ's ministry is, is a witness to the fact that the one we are examining, the one greater than John, the one mighty to save, is all that we need. Fully man, fully God, son of God, son of man, the perfect, spotless Savior. Let's pray. God of all grace, Lord, we thank you that through faith in the name of your Son, the same love and pleasure that you have for him is ours. Lord, that it is ours to know and to enjoy. Lord, that because his righteousness belongs to us, we are accepted and we are beloved in him by you. God, we rejoice in the good news that Satan has no ground on which he can accuse us because of Christ's perfect life, because of his sacrificial death in our place. Father, I pray that you would work in us that same spirit of humility that we see in John the Baptist, that same eagerness to make him known, to exalt him, to see his name glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.